0: Hello, you're listening to Unpacking the Case, a podcast by David Jones-Bold, the real estate law specialists. Today, and as ever, I am joined by our head of legal training, Richard Snape. Hi, Richard. Hello, Lizzie. It's great to have you with us today. Um, today, we're, we're recording off the back of your webinar um, on Tuesday, the 11th of May, which looked at exercising break clauses and the associated pitfalls. So, I think to start things off, we're going to have a look at Capital Park Leeds PLC and Global Radio Services, a case from 2020, and just look at that in the context of what amounts to vacant possession.
1: Yeah, I mean, Capital Park and Global Radio is a, is a strange case. It's actually, they got leave to appeal from the, to the Court of Appeals, so sort of watch this space. And I wouldn't be surprised if it doesn't stand the test of time, but it's. Uh, you know, at the moment, at least, it's very significant, from October of last year. um, And uh, the landlords were Capital Park. Global Radio was quite a... seems to have been quite an antiquated property they took on this lease of. They actually took an assignment of a lease, a 24-year lease, and they were the assignees. and They could exercise a break clause and wanted to exercise it, but as commonly the case, they had to give up vacant possession. It's a warning to, you know, various people within the property world not just the lawyers but also the surveyors and the likes as to how to behave and how not to behave yeah they started uh, doing work uh, to enable them to, to sort of move out of the premises and strip out their uh, fittings and things like this and uh, in the course of this they found that uh, the boilers didn't work they'd taken out things like the lighting system tending to replace it and uh, Pipework and floor coverings and ceiling tiles, window sills—so substantial amount. Then they found out that this, let's uh, say, the boiler didn't uh, didn't work and needed to be repaired. But uh, not unnaturally, thought to themselves, well, if we you know, replace or repair like for like this boiler, as the lease requires, then the landlord, when incoming tenant, is just going to replace it. It's very, very antiquated. So they started to, to discuss the the matter with the landlord and the landlord's agents, uh, wanting to basically uh, be given more time or to just surrender the lease uh, or to you know, deal with what to have, you know, to do with the boiler. Uh, they didn't get any kind of written confirmation, which was a bit of a mistake, just assumed that things would work out. But when it became apparent that they couldn't reach agreement, they only had about 12 weeks left uh, to do the rest of the work and all the work, which was woefully inadequate, they got to quotes and they got contractors around and it just couldn't be done within 12 weeks so they left the premises most cases on vacant possession involve leaving things behind the landlord argued you haven't left anything behind uh, behind far from it but you've taken all these things and just left me with a shell and the court said that vacant possession uh means not just leaving things behind or not giving up vacant possession it means taking things with you I mean, the standard case is a 1946 case called the uh, uh, Comfort and Consolidated Holdings in Ireland, which basically is the one people quote uh, that if you've got any substantial impediment to the landlord's being able to reoccupy a substantial part of the premises, you haven't given up vacant possession. And they had left, you know, a substantial impediment to the landlord occupying because there was no ceiling tiles and floor coverings and the likes. It is controversial. We'll have to see if it goes to the Court of Appeal, what the Court of Appeal say.
0: OK, and how does that square with the earlier 2016 case, Riverside and NHS?
1: Yeah, well, Riverside and NHS, uh, the NHS with the tenancy. They'd take on open plan offices, as a lot of government bodies tend to do, lots of people do. And then with licence to alter, where appropriate, fitted it out to their likings. Uh, and the thing that was really in question is they put throughout these demountable partitions, it's what they call a rabbit warren effect. You start off with a big, big sort of space and then you put all these partitions and convert it into small offices and the likes. And they're quite substantial things. They got to uh, you know, sort of attached to the floor and ceiling and they've got electric motors and the likes. And they had to give up vacant possession and they wanted to exercise the break as well um and they did the worst of all worlds what do they do with the partitions well if they're fittings the tenant should take the fittings with them because if they leave fittings behind and it's substantial impediment then uh, then uh they can't break the lease they haven't given up vacant possession if they're fixtures you'd be trespassing taking them um and so you know you leave the fixtures behind But there's also a halfway house if it's a leaseholders, as you may appreciate, that they could be attached with the landlords, unless the landlord have said otherwise, their tenants fixtures, if they've been attached by the tenant, And unless you've agreed otherwise, you should be taking the tenants fixtures. They left the partitions uh, behind and the court said that they were fittings. They could easily be detached without damaging them and the likes you should have taken them. Uh, And even if they weren't fittings, there were tenants' fixtures, you were still lost. The tenant couldn't give up vacant, didn't, hadn't given up vacant possession. There was a substantial impediment to the landlord's occupation. And uh, capital and global is is an unusual case because they took a huge amount of things with them. But you've got this sort of thin line to tread. If you start taking things that you shouldn't take, then you might be found not to give up vacant possession. And if you start leaving behind things you shouldn't leave behind, you might just find the same. So it is a difficult, slow uh, line to to, know where to draw the line.
0: Okay, that's brilliant. Thank you. So just on a more general point then, are there any other factors that are important to deciding if they have given up vacant possession?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's quite a a wally kind of concept, really. Um, You know, the code for leasing business premises, which new version came in last September, uh, basically says that uh, the condition precedent that you should have is giving up occupation, which is not necessarily quite the same thing. Uh, but uh, a case I glossed over a little bit from uh, about ten years ago, called NYK and uh, where at the end of the lease they, well, they were doing work to give up, you know. So to prevent a dilapidations claim and the contractors stayed behind for about six days and also over the weekend they had security staff staying there and they argued, you know, the landlord argues that uh, you're not giving up vacant possession and the tenants argue we are, you know, there's nothing stopping you turning up in the premises, there's no substantial impediment, we've just got a few contractors around. Uh, And the court there, although other cases have said otherwise, said that you've got to make sure there's no one there, if you like, if somebody else is there, either a contractor or your staff, uh, it doesn't matter that the landlord can still move in, you know, the former landlord, you've not given up vacant possession. That's the other factor, I suspect. They'd have been much better off uh, just being sued for a little bit of dilapidations and giving up the keys on the last day and telling the contractors to go, Quite honestly. They'd have, they'd have been able to, 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 to break the lease.
0: So I think we want to move on now to look at the duration of break clauses and looking at this phrase, time is of the essence, which is so frequently used in relation to break notices, to stress the importance of the precision of notice periods and the nuances of how you determine the right date um, for the break. So if you could talk to that for a moment, and I believe you're going to bring in the very well-known case of Manai Investment and Eagle Star Life Assurance. This is a case from 1997 which very much exemplifies what happens if you get it wrong.
1: Yeah. Uh, before I actually get on to Manai, uh, the, the problem that goes back to one of the oldest cases I ever mentioned, rarely mentioned it, of course, is actually, and that's a case called Cadbian Martinez in 1804. Which said that um, times of the essence when you exercise a break clause, if you miss the break day by a single day, you know, you've lost the right to break with catastrophic consequences for years to come. Um, and uh, that's some of the background, as I say to it. You know, at least says you've got to serve at least six months' notice and you've waited five months, three weeks, and six days, it's already too late. And again, before we get on to Manai, there's a lot of pitfalls uh, to be had in getting the right duration, not least of which because if a lease says, for instance, you serve six months notice, then it's uh, six months full stop. So if you were to serve a notice, for instance, six calendar months, and if you were to serve a a notice on June the 30th, terminating the lease on December the 31st, then that's six months, uh, uh, I hope anyway. Uh, whereas uh, if it says you serve clear day's notice or month's notice, then you don't include the date of service and the termination date. So if it says, you know, six clear month's notice and you served on June the 30th terminating or purporting to terminate on December the 31st, it would be too late. And people also get confused from other things. Uh, if a lease says, you might remember this from your studies, but if it's a lease starts, it says it's from such and such a date, it doesn't actually start until the following day. So that affects the duration. Whereas if it says from and including such and such a date, it starts on that actual day. And you know, there can be a bit of a recipe for disaster, these things. There was also an older case, Sidebottom in Holland in 1895, that says if you've got a periodic tenancy, and you serve notice to quit, uh, you know, so let's say that the notice was on January the 13th, you know, then you can put January the 12th or 13th and you notice because it terminates Sunday um, at midnight between the two days. Whereas if it's a fixed term tenancy with a break, that's not necessarily the case. Um, the Man I and Eagle Star, I mean, it used to be thought that you actually had to put the break date in uh, Man Eye and Eagle Star was a, say a famous case, a House of Lords as they were case from 1997. It was only a three to two majority, as I remember. And it was a classic of its time, the break notice, it was a, it was a there were two identical leases actually involved, uh, 10-year leases with breaks uh, in German Street in central London, which it seems to feature an inordinate number of cases. Uh, It's a litigator's dream. But uh, they served a notice. It should have terminated the lease on January the 13th, but they stated it was January the 12th. Um, It was the right duration notice. They just got the the wrong day. Eventually, the House of Lords said that um, all you need is you don't need to state a date. You still need the right duration in terms of, you know, if you wait too long, time's still of the essence but the question is whether a reasonable recipient would understand what was intended. And that's not just about break clauses, that's about notices generally. And a reasonable recipient would have understood that you intended to break the lease. And so it was valid. there have been cases beforehand which had said similar things, uh, but other cases it said otherwise. There was a case I mentioned called Micrographics and Woking 8, which, They served a break notice 15 months wrong. There's been a more recent residential case, actually, uh, last year called uh, uh, Pease and Carter, P-E-A-S-E, where it's a notice seeking possession and it should have been, you know, told you the notice, you know, the the duration period was uh, November 2014 and they put November 2013, but the court decided a reasonable recipient would understand what you intended. And that's the effect of manai. Don't make the mistake. You know, try and get it right. But if you get it wrong, then uh, you know the test again, quite a vague one. Would a reasonable recipient know what was intended? And it's not just about the date of the break. It had to be other things besides, and not just about break clauses.
0: So, are there any other examples of similar instances as to what happened in manai?
1: Yeah, well, there's quite a lot of cases on sort of getting the wrong dates. Uh, I should have perhaps also mentioned it's absolutely essential you get it correct still, where you've got something like a rolling break, or if you've got more than one break, you need to make quite clear to the recipient what was intended. But there's other cases which I didn't get around to mentioned in the notes, but time didn't permit me to uh, mention in the, uh, in the, the course itself. Uh, such as um, there was, for instance, a case called Baker Tilly and Computer Associates, I think from about 2009, where the original name of the tenants was Baker Tilly Services, but they changed their name to Baker Tilly Management. And the landlord on this occasion served a notice, but they got the wrong uh, name. They got the predecessor's name and the court decided that's a reasonable recipient would know what was intended. Another case from those notes from the late nineties, nineteen ninety eight, is uh, Dunham Bradstreet and Provident Mutual. Some of these cases cannot easily be reconciled. Uh, they served a notice. Well, it was uh, a subsidiary. The tenant was of the, the head company, and they served the notice uh, in the name you know, to the name of the head company, and that was held to be ambiguous. A reasonable recipient wouldn't know what was intended. I say some of these cases can't easily be reconciled and uh, make sure, you know, they're more of a way of getting people off the hook when they've already made the mistake. It's best not to make the mistake.
0: Okay, so I think the kind of takeaway from that is precision, um, understanding the nuances between from and from and including.
1: I think it's also the case that the the landlords and, and agents need to give lawyers, you know, adequate notice to actually you know, serve the break notices. Mm-hmm. Just because you have to serve at least six months' notice doesn't mean to say you wait until six months because uh, there's too much scope for things going wrong. You know, people ask me, for instance, you know, what do you think about emails as a method of service? And I don't because so many things can go wrong. You and think you've served a notice and it's just sitting in a you know, you know, junk box or something. Uh, so I don't think it's a very good idea or they can be. People can claim they never received them and all that.
0: Okay, so another theme that came up in the webinar was personal breaks. So I think if we just take a look at one of the cases in that area now, um, the first of those being Oil Property and Olympia and York from 1993.
1: Yeah, it's an incredibly complicated case, actually. So I didn't go through the detail. I didn't have a chance to mention it in the, uh, in the webinar. It all took place. Oh, uh, Olympia in New York uh, went to. Uh, out of business in 1992. But they were a Canadian uh, uh, organization, huge uh, company, uh, land holding company, who uh, were the ones who originally started uh, the uh, development of, of Canary Wharf in London you know, from being just uh, docks into what it is now and skyscrapers galore. And London, in particular, suffered greatly in the late 80s, early 90s. Some may even remember when the market fell through, you know, off a cliff, much more so than sort of at the moment, and much more so in the days of the credit crunch in southeast England. I remember rents more than halving. Which uh, gave rise to the demise of lots of people, including, well, it was, you know, it was worldwide, but uh, Olympia and York. But anyway, uh, the, the original tenants of this particular premises uh, were ICI, and they had a personal break in that it said it could be only exercised by the original tenant, basically. Um, and, uh, and often you see them mutually, you know, sort of either the landlord or the tenant can exercise a break, but only the original landlord or tenant. So it'll say it's either personal or it'll mention that only such as such can uh, uh, break the lease and it won't uh, pass on an assignment. They had assigned the lease and uh, the, it was the administrators of the assignee who actually wanted to uh, assign back to the original tenant because they could exercise this break clause. And uh, they, uh landlords refused to give their consent to the assignment. It was a typical sort of regulation, not to assign without consent, not to be unreasonably withheld. And the landlord refused. The parties uh, accepted that the original tenant could take a, a lease back you know, and you know, take, take a, an assignment of the lease and uh, exercise the break, more of that shortly. Uh, But uh, the landlord's argument was that uh, we don't want the tenants to break the lease because we'll have this property, you know, vacant and the likes if we do so, and therefore we're refusing consent to the assignment. And the court decided it was reasonable to take into account the landlord's financial interests, even at the expense of the assignee, and they refused the alienation. And that was the first of the cases.
0: So the, the second case was Max Factor and the Wesleyan Society. Do yeah. you want to talk to that one for a moment? Yeah,
1: it's the thing that's um, one of the things they conceded in Olympia in York. Uh, supposing you did take uh, an assignment back, you know, the original tenant who's got the personal break clause did take an assignment back of the lease. Uh, and that's what happened here. Wesleyan Society with the landlords and Max Factor were the tenants. And the court decided that uh, it's also a case called LIMPAC and uh, Viva said the same thing. If it's exercisable by the original tenant, it's only exercisable whilst they're original tenant. So even if you were to take an assignment back, you, the original tenant, uh, are not anymore, if you like, and therefore you couldn't exercise the break anyway.
0: Thank you very much, Richard. Thanks for your time. Oh, my pleasure. We look forward to speaking to you after our next webinar. You've been listening to Unpacking the Case, a podcast by David Jones Bold.